Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 18, Where Loyalties Lay. As we began talking about last day, the opening months of the war did not go over well for Konrad von Hutzendorf. In the wake of Russian mobilization, the armies of Austria-Hungary were forced to begin the war on the defensive and bear the brunt of the eventual Russian attack coming from the east, while the Germans were occupied in France and Belgium. With Army Group B already taking a mauling in Serbia, Hutzendorf would launch his primary offensive into Galicia just seven days later, which is where we will pick up from today. If you take a look at the map I've uploaded to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, Galicia is roughly situated between southeast Poland and modern-day Hungary. In the past, Galicia had been an independent kingdom, but since the late 19th century, had become partitioned between the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires, with the Carpathian Mountains rising up like a spine and serving as a natural barrier between the frontiers. In 1914, Hutzendorf had seen Galicia as the most vulnerable place for an attack. He had wrongly expected that the bulk of Russian forces would be positioned near Warsaw, in order to guard Russian-held Poland from attacks coming from East Prussia or the South. This would be his first mistake. His second, the Austrian chief expected that the German 8th Army, positioned in East Prussia, would help divert the Russians away from Glacia by launching a simultaneous attack of their own. But of course, the arrival of Renenkopf and Samsonov into East Prussia on August the 19th had dashed that hope overnight. Unlike the Serbian invasion of August 12th, Hutzendorf would personally oversee this operation and staked his headquarters in the fortress city of Presmasil, originally founded back in the 8th century to connect European and Middle Eastern trade markets. In the days leading to their jump off into Glacia, Austro-Hungarian cavalry had been conducting sweeping patrols into the Russian frontier, in order to get a read on any opposition in the area. Unfortunately, the cavalrymen, who had ridden their horses to exhaustion, could obtain little. The Russians, based on the information provided by the turncoat Alfred Rettel from last week, had relocated their command centers further inland, and were able to keep the Austrians from getting valuable intel. So before the invasion even got underway, it was not looking good. While Army Group B continued to struggle against Radimir Putnik and the Serbs, Group A, the Galatian spearheading force, was about to head into enemy territory undermanned, undergunned, and without proper intelligence. To his credit, Hutzendorf recognized this, but with the Germans unable to send help, there was little he could do. If he delayed and waited for the units in Serbia or German reinforcements, it was feared the Russians would reach maximum fighting strength, so it was decided it was better to make way while the sun shines. On August the 20th, three Austro-Hungarian armies which made up Army Group A crossed in the Glacia. The first army, under the command of Viktor Dankel, headed north towards Krasnik. The fourth, under Moritz Offenberg, headed northeast, while Rudolf Brudermann's third advanced eastward. As is the norm for this particular time in the war, the initial stages went well. Weather was favorable, and Russian opposition was both sporadic and disorganized. Dunkel defeated the Russians near Krasnik, while Offenberg's 4th Army nearly had their own version of Tannenberg by netting 20,000 POWs near Komarov. But it was on the most eastern flank where the thread began to unravel. The Austrian 3rd Army, commanded by Rudolf Brudermann, ran smack into a major counteroffensive in the direction of Lemberg, the Glacian capital, and Brudermann was forced to pull his troops back behind the city. On September the 6th, Hutzendorf ordered a counterattack to retake Lemberg, but the effort failed when unyielding Russian artillery terrorized the advancing Austrians. A reservist en route to the Inferno recalls, quote, We had been underway for about three hours. We heard far away repeated rumblings. We were thunderstruck at the sudden realization that the Russians had penetrated so deeply, unquote. 
At his headquarters in Presmasol, Hutzendorf was in a bind, but even the best juggler in the world only has two hands. Despite the victories at Krasnik and Komarov, the collapse at Lemberg had left the front unstable. The 4th and 1st armies were at risk of being cut off and surrounded by the unfolding Russian presence which was making its way southward. With the Serbian operation running grossly behind schedule, and the Germans unwilling to leave East Prussia despite their victory at Tannenberg, the Austrian chief of staff found that his hands were tied. On September 12th, just three days after the Western Allies scored their victory at the Marne, the order for general retreat was given. Lemberg, Krasnik, and Komarov were abandoned. Hutzendorf himself had to flee Presmissel, which fell under a siege which would not be lifted until March of 1915, when its garrison of 120,000 troops fell into Russian captivity. The Austrians began to retreat through the passes in the Carpathians, or towards the Polish city of Krakow on the western bank of the Vistula. The retreat from Glacia was as devastating as its timing. In just three days of each other, both the Schlieffen Plan and Hutzendorf's Plan R had failed. The Central Powers, who banked so much on bringing a swift conclusion to the war that summer, had nothing left in the cupboard and no hidden aces. In the wake of his disastrous campaign, Hutzendorf was shaken both personally and professionally. Not only had he lost one of his sons in the fighting near Lemberg, but he recognized that given a miracle, he could only hope that the Russians, equally exhausted from the fighting, would not follow up their victories. In her subliminal book, The Guns of August, Barbara Tuckman writes that the Russian victories in Glacia had accomplished a mutilation of the Austro-Hungarian army, which, despite the graphic choice of words, is as accurate a description as you're going to get. Out of the 800,000 men who had gone into Glacia, 470,000 became casualties. Russian losses were half of that, but as we talked about last day, they could absorb those losses with greater ease. For the Austro-Hungarians, the most devastating of these casualties were the loss of so many skilled multilingual officers. In an army of various languages and ethnicities, the loss of these officers meant that the very glue of the army had been sapped. Communication within its forces for the rest of the war would be increasingly difficult, and as a result, would have to rely more on German help to supplement this shortfall. Now, I would be remiss if I did not bring up an important issue which often surfaces in the historiography. One of the more endearing arguments floated by historians is that it was the ethnic makeup of the Austro-Hungarian army which led to the disasters in Serbia and Glacia. This theory lends itself to a broader one, that it was the inability of the Austro-Hungarians to accommodate these different ethnicities, in a time where nationalism ran strong, which helped bring about the empire's downfall in 1918. Of all the European armies, Austria-Hungary fielded the most ethnically diverse, consisting of at least 9 to 12 different language groups. There were Poles, Bosnian Serbs, Czechs, Croatians, Romanians, Germans, Slovaks, and even a smithering of Italian, which made the army as diverse as the empire itself. Historians, the most prominent being Geoffrey Waro, have argued that the ethnically divided army was torn between where their loyalties in the conflict lay. In his book Warfare and Society in Europe, Waro argues that in both Serbian and Glacian campaigns, there were mass desertions and defections by the Slavic groups of the army, namely the Bosnian Serbs and Romanians, who felt a natural inkling towards their bigger Russian cousins. Of course, to blame the failures of that summer on widespread disloyalty is a bit tricky without the proper sources. Because the Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved in 1918, many of these groups were granted sovereignty, and a lot of the important documentation which could shed light on this issue has been lost. Today, the debate has moved more to the center, with historians like John Keegan arguing that while desertions did occur, they did not occur on a scale large enough to risk the success of such a massive military undertaking. 
The Poles, for example, distrusted the Russians immensely, and were known to have fought with noticeable vigor during their encounters. But Allied propagandists were quick to attribute Austria's failures to the supposed defections, and with the subsequent collapse of the empire seems to have been proof of that claim. But no one can deny that the loss of the multilingual officers, the lieutenants, captains, and majors who commanded these regiments, turned out to be the first nail in the coffin for the Habsburg's forces. The replacements were not near the same caliber, and in some cases could not even speak the language of the men they were charged to take care of, a problem which would become more pressing as the war dragged on. But getting back to the situation at hand, the failure in Glacia presented the first strategic crisis of the Eastern Front. With the retreat of September the 12th, the Austrians had allowed the Russians to advance deeper into Glacia, and found that the Hungarian half of the empire was now under threat of invasion. If the Russians wanted to, they could drive into Silesia and capture the important coal fields and industry sectors, which were so vital to both German and Austro-Hungarian war efforts. More troubling was that Budapest and Vienna now ran the risk of capture if the Russians decided on the knockout blow. But as you might have guessed, there was a difference of opinion within the Stavka, the think tank of the Russian high command. The man in charge of all Russian forces in the east was the Tsar's cousin, the Grand Duke Nicholas. Now the Grand Duke, like many in the upper echelon of Tsar's society, had very little field experience, and had gotten the job based on his familial connection with the nobility. Despite numerous attempts from his advisors, the Grand Duke decided that instead of pressing the attack in Glacia and Silesia, he would focus his efforts in the Polish salient. The Germans, it had just been discovered, were currently in the process of prepping for an offensive against Warsaw, in order to give the Austrians some breathing room. Ludendorff and Hindenburg were unaware that the Stavka had picked up on their plans, and so the Grand Duke thought this would be an ideal time to extract some revenge for the slaughter at Tannenberg. The Russian plan was to allow the newly created German Ninth Army, composed mostly of Tannenberg veterans and reinforcements from the west, to advance into the Polish salient, and then swoop down along the east bank of the Vistula and destroy the Germans in a two-pronged attack from the rear. This took an incredible amount of planning and based on the size of the armies involved, was going to be one of the largest battles of the war. The German 9th Army would be supported by the Austrian 1st, 2nd, and 4th Armies, who would launch a second offensive back into Glacia to help relieve Presmissel. The Stavka fielded four armies in response. A total of nearly 800,000 men would be involved in this operation. The battles for Warsaw got underway on October the 10th, with the Germans getting within 20 kilometers of the Polish capital, while the Austrian offensive failed to make any substantial gain. Neither ally could capitalize on the offensive, and the sheer mass of the Russian presence had kept the attackers at bay. These early failures caused a rift in the Austro-German alliance. From the outset, communication was poor, which made coordination between the two armies impossible. Like the Western Front, runners were often employed to carry messages to and fro, but based on the low life expectancy of that occupation, many of them never made it to their destination or if they did arrive, their information was already outdated based on the ever-changing movements of the battlefield. At one point in the battle, Hutzendorf made repeated overtures to the Germans to send reinforcements, but was coldly shot down by the Kaiser himself. Wilhelm, alluding to the successes at Tannenberg in East Prussia, stung Hutzendorf by saying that if one German army could defeat two Russians, then surely the Austrians could handle their own. Basically, he was telling the Austrians to prove yourself not completely useless. On November 1st, at the height of the campaign, Wilhelm made a bold move, which signified the situation on the ground was sliding out of control. After the failed attempt to take Warsaw, the Kaiser granted Hindenburg and Ludendorff near full autonomy from the west. 
Since August, the two men had to work under the offices of Moltke and Falkenhayn, but were now essentially free to run the show as they saw fit. This move signaled that the severity of both western and eastern fronts were now at a fever pitch, and fewer restrictions would allow Falkenhayn and Hindenburg-Ludendorff to focus on their respective theaters. This move by Berlin was not very popular in Vienna. Hutzendorf and Franz Joseph protested numerous attempts by the Germans to fold their forces under this new administrative umbrella. Hutzendorf went so far as to threaten his resignation if he was forced into a subservient role. This served to really piss off the German generals, who began to see their Austrian counterparts more as a burden than a necessity. Falkenhayn made the point to refer to the Austrians as a walking cadaver whenever war council meetings were in session. The fighting near Warsaw and the Polish salient would continue throughout the winter. The most vicious contest was near the city of Lodz, where, in 1905, Tsar's police had shot hundreds of workers attempting a mass strike. From November 18th to the 25th, in appalling winter conditions, the Germans and Russians repeatedly failed to take control of the city. Temperatures dropped to well below freezing, and many Russians were sent into the fighting without proper boots or winter gear. Aid stations were little more than frozen ditches, and the wounded were left out on the snow. Countless men on both sides would freeze to death before the fighting came to a close. The problem which came to plague both armies, and this is an important point on why the Warsaw offenses failed, was the total absence of railways. The Russians had purposely deprived the salient of proper railway lines, which meant the massive flanking maneuvers which were supposed to take place could not be completed. The Russian doctrine of the time believed the salient was the most obvious choice for an attack by an invading army, as it was surrounded by East Prussia and Glacia. So St. Petersburg had decided in the decades leading to the war that the region should be left as a buttress, and deprive it of useful railways and industries which could fall to the enemy. This decision reflects the type of strategy-making which would come to define Russian doctrine. Essentially, the Russians were able, and at times willing, to give up huge swaths of territory to the opposition. They had nearly 6,000 kilometers of empire which could be used, and with its industries based in the South Caucasus and near the Ural Mountains, retreat meant that their supply lines would get shorter while the enemies would get longer. They had used this tactic with astounding success against Napoleon, as the Russians simply fell back into the interior until General Winter, a nickname for the bitter Russian cold, literally froze Napoleon's army in their tracks. This was a big reason why the Eastern Front saw far more mobility than the West, and why success in the East was measured in hundreds of kilometers as opposed to dozens. The lack of railways in the salient proved to be a bigger problem for the Germans, who found that their advances were limited, less risk running out their own supply chains, which had been their downfall back on the Marne. By the end of November, like on the Western Front, the lines were becoming stagnated. They now stretched some 800 kilometers from the coast of the Baltic Sea to the Carpathian Mountains, forming a front nearly twice as long as what we see in the West. The Germans, who had begun the war with a string of victories, first at Liege, Antwerp, the frontiers, and Tannenberg, had seen their efforts reversed in a matter of weeks. The Austrian failure to take Galicia had resulted in everything being thrown into disarray. The vacuum which formed near Silesia had forced the two eastern allies into a cooperative venture at the Polish salient to help divert the Russians from what could have been a debilitating blow. Even with the entry of the Ottoman Empire that November, which we chronicled back in episode 14, failed to reduce the strain on the Polish and Galician fronts. Even with the winter months settling in, the eastern front did not fall quiet. The Russians launched a second attack in December into the Carpathian Mountains, which the Austrians were able to hold off until spring of 1915. What is unanimously agreed is that throughout the winter of 1914 to the spring of 1915, whether it was the Germans, British, or French, 
none of the belligerents had any idea of what to do next. The opening battles had been so large and costly that the powers were reluctant to recognize that the war was not going to follow the regular scripts. War plans, which had been so important in the pre-war years, but which had never been tested in earnest, gave way to the realities of industrial warfare. Both sides immediately began planning and searching for that knockout blow, and would spend the next three years trying to make that happen. Next week, we will take a tour of the larger world at war, and look at events which transpired in the Pacific and the various colonial holdings in Africa. As I glance over at my calendar here, I see that we are rapidly approaching the end of 2014, at the same time we are ending 1914. I swear I did not plan this, but it is oddly appropriate. Our next episode will be up on December the 28th, and I will try my very best to have the next one up for January 7th, but with the holidays, it is possible I might fall behind by a couple of days. But our first episode in the new year will look at how the developments at the front were being received at home, and why public opinion remained in favor of continuing the war in 1915. That should ease us nicely back into the routine and help shake off that holiday hangover. That's it for this week. I hope everyone has a safe and fun-filled holiday season. If you have not done so, check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in touch with me. Comments, criticisms, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you are interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, you can find us on iTunes and write a nice little review to help boost us in the ranking and force me to continue turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.